from recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. I'm your host, Steve Urban, and here is your RiderFlex episode of the day. And on today's episode of the RiderFlex podcast, we have serial tech entrepreneur Aaron Houghton. Aaron started his first business at the age of 17 and went on to launch more than 10 tech startups. He really has an inspiring story, gives some great advice here for entrepreneurs and first-time executives. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into the RiderFlex podcast. Aaron Houghton on the RiderFlex podcast today. Aaron, how you doing? Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. We, uh, we both got to shovel snow this morning here in Colorado, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Feet of snow. It's funny. I always get so excited about the big mountain snow forecast. And for some reason, I was so excited about this one because it said, you know, multiple feet of snow. And then it says, you know, in your front yard. And I'm like, oh, that's not as fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This morning. Uh, oh, man. I tell you, I'm 52. So that uh, that's shoveling. Oof, oof, my back yeah. is uh, not quite as strong as it used to be. Yeah. You got a comfortable uh, chair there? You ready to go? There? I do, though. <laughs> yep, I do. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, you know, we give entrepreneurial advice and uh, on this on this podcast, and you're the perfect guest, right? You've you've been doing it since you were like 16, 17, something like that. Built and sold several companies, so I appreciate you being on and sharing your story. For the folks that don't know you, uh, why don't we start off with? You know, where you're from, where you grew up, a little bit about your childhood and parents and all that good stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, so I spent the last uh, 20 years in North Carolina. So I live in Boulder, Colorado now. I've been here two years and okay. spent the last 20 years before this um, living kind of in the central part of North Carolina around Chapel Hill. Okay. Um, went to school there. So I, I kind of these days consider myself a North Carolinian, um, although I was born in the Midwest. I was born in Wisconsin, so I was a, okay. yeah, my first seven years of my life were with snowstorms like today being <laughs> the regular. Okay. Um, so, grew up in a family where we spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, one of my, both my parents are educators. My mom is, a, they're both now retired, but mom was a career speech pathologist, so working with young children and also an adjunct at a university teaching speech pathology students. Okay. Um, and my dad was a professor of education, so teaching teachers that would come out to be middle grades education teachers in, uh, in school systems. Wow. And, now, uh, wow. I find that interesting, by the way, because I just assumed that one of them may have been an entrepreneur or a business owner, but neither one, huh? Neither one. You yeah. just, I, I had a neighbor who ran a painting business and he once showed me how to use QuickBooks when I think I was 13 years old. And yeah, that was, that was kind of the, as close as <laughs> I got to, to the business world. Um, I had a really kind of wild childhood growing up those first seven years in um, what, you know, I think is casually called like the married family housing, like the apartment complexes that are on campus at a university that have families in them. It's, you know, for grad students typically. Um, and because, you know, UW-Madison is a big international university, I didn't have a single friend growing up who was white, who spoke English as a first language. Is that right? Um, everybody wow. was from everywhere else. And so my idea of normal for the first couple of years of my life was was really abnormal. Um, and then we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where my dad got his first professorship. Uh, and it was a little bit different, but it was a great place to live, small mountains and good active outdoor culture there. So five years there. What, uh, year, what year was that? Um, so we left Arkansas in, uh, I think 1993 to move to Asheville, North Carolina. And so when you left there, you were, what, what grade were you in at that time? I, uh, finished uh, sixth grade in Arkansas and okay. started seventh grade in North Carolina. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. So he got another job. He got moved again. Yep. Yep. He, he decided he wanted a different position in the university and, um, got, got what was a better match. So, 
Um, I remember at the time when we were leaving Wisconsin, actually, we had three opportunities. It was Jacksonville, Florida, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and Juneau, Alaska. So that was a big life branch. (laughs) Very, very different. We did Arkansas for a few years, and then we got this opportunity at Western Carolina University near just west of Asheville in North Carolina. I see. Okay. Any, any, Any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got two younger brothers, um, both okay. incredible human beings and great friends of mine. The younger, so you were the oldest. I'm the oldest. Yep, my youngest brother actually flies in tomorrow night to spend Thanksgiving with us here with his wife in Colorado, and we haven't seen him in a couple of years. He's lived in Sydney, Australia, the last three years. Wow. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So you so you graduate high school in North Carolina. Yep. You got you got into UNC. Got into UNC, in-state, yep, exactly. Uh, awesome, awesome. Did you pick that school because you wanted to stay close, or was that you were a big, huge basketball fan, or why go there? It was funny. I'd only been in North Carolina a couple years, and although I played JV and varsity basketball in oh. high school, oh. I, remember, I remember all these people talking about Carolina and playing Duke, and I was like, what even are those things? And I was like, <laughs> we live in North Carolina. Aren't all the schools Carolina? I mean, I was clueless about this stuff up through the point at which I started applying to colleges. Um, and my, my two primary schools were Wake Forest and Carolina. I got into both and Wake being a private school wanted to charge like $30,000 a year. And I got a massive scholarship that paid for all of it, except for like $5,000 a year. And Carolina was still cheaper <laughs> as an in-state school. Um, wow. So wow. Okay. It came down to money in the end, but um, I actually got a, a scholarship in last minute, kind of 11th hour to go to UNC that paid for effectively all my tuition and, and room and board. Wow. That's a, that's a major deal. So your grades in high school are pretty, pretty damn good then. Yeah, I, I was, was I third or fourth. I was fourth in my senior class, but a small school. I ended up getting a scholarship last minute from the Sam Walton Foundation. So how perfect is that? I lived in North Carolina for five years. Sorry, in, in Arkansas in Fayetteville near the headquarters of Walmart. And I ended up in North Carolina now getting a scholarship and literally Walmart paid a full ride for me to go to Carolina. How about that? Well, that, that that's, that's interesting. Okay, now I got to ask you, um, did you get to go to Duke, North Carolina basketball game? I mean, oh, I mean a million of them. Yeah. Are, are you serious? You're in the, the stadium. Now that's pretty, now that's pretty cool. That's there, pretty cool. There's, there's no more intensity than that other than maybe the entrepreneurial world. Um, just sitting <laughs> in a seat in, uh, in the Dean Dome watching uh, us, uh, you know, sometimes beat and sometimes get beaten by <laughs> the Dukies from seven miles away. Um, you know, my heart rate is never below about 140, I think, uh, in one of those games. Oh, and even wow. now watching them on television, I'm corrupting my young children with the, with the same <laughs> I, I, I uh, Not to go too deep on that topic, but the, the, how close the, the students are behind the players. I mean, the, the players' the bench is like right here. The students are almost leaning over the players to yell. like They're, they're like right next to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Both the stadiums are – are super intense. I mean, Cameron over at Duke is the smaller one and the hotter one, right? I think it's kind of a part of their strategy to make it obscenely hot in there and there's no way to cool the place off. So it's kind of like going to a hot yoga class for the athletes. Um, Ming Dome is definitely a better place for, for any athlete to play. What a, what a great experience. Now, all right, so you start going through college life. Um, do you have this entrepreneurial bug, like Super early? Are you like early on, even as a freshman, sophomore, you're like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm never going to have a regular job. I'm going to start a business. Talk to me about how this happens. Yeah, kind of. Um, I had a couple of 
maybe normal jobs as a high school student. Um, I mowed neighbors' lawns, which yeah. was brutal <laughs> in summer in the summer heat. Um, and I did some like athletic stuff, like I was a you know scorekeeper at basketball games, and I uh, refereed soccer and basketball, which was a lot of fun. Okay. Um, and so, but you know, I was an employee, and you know, did that sort of work. I think I got paid like two dollars to do scorekeeping per basketball game. It's like <laughs> amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, but. You know, following that um, in high school, my dad, um, you know, being a professor at the time, he was always kind of on the cutting edge of thinking about like what sort of technology or what sort of things are going to be dominating education in 20 or 20 years from now. Right. So he's teaching teachers that are going to come out and teach eighth grade for their entire career. Um, like what's, you know, what's on the horizon so that he can help prepare them for that. And so computers and technology in the seventies and eighties and and the development of the internet, those were all really interesting things to him. Um, and me being his oldest of three children, I think I just got some of that indoctrination and I was like, here's, here's what people, here's what a website is. And here's why a business might want one. This was in 1997, probably 1997. Um, and I remember that year he told me something that I still remember very well to this day, which is that. Um, he said next year by Christmas, it was probably about this time, maybe you know, November. He said next year by Christmas, a year from now, uh, which would have been like 1998, um, you'll be able to buy anything you might want to get somebody as a Christmas present on the internet. And that was like unbelievable at the time. Cause I think there were like two things I could think of like Land's End maybe had a website and you could buy pants. And I remember <laughs> thinking like everything that's impossible, like impossible. How could that even be? So, you know, that, that's how I came to the internet and how I came to technology was I from see. the very front side of it. Um, and I started building websites for people. So that was, that was step one. As so I you, okay. All right. You started making money building websites. All right. And you were a computer science major. Yeah. I eventually ended up you know, studying computer science, but you know, by the time I got to Carolina, um, two years later, I was writing software. I taught myself by buying an O'Reilly book, which at that time you could then buy on the internet, probably from Amazon. Um, <laughs> or the Noble online, I don't know. Um, and I taught myself to program. And I learned HTML by some online tutorials that dad had pointed me to for how to build a website. Okay. All right. So you're already, you're generating income while you're in school. You're already, you're already making money. Now, did you have, you didn't, you didn't actually file like uh, an LLC or that time where people were just paying you. So I need to look back on the founding date of it. I actually just dissolved that entity last year. It was, a, oh. it was, a, it was an escort, a North Carolina S corporation, which was called Creation. Um, <clears throat> so it ran for a very long time. I need to go back and figure out when I founded it. I think it was 2000 or 2001. So I would have been a university student at the time. So I think the first year or two in like high school, I was doing it kind of under a DBA. I remember my mom basically made me send her this like, handwritten at the time i wasn't even putting in a spreadsheet uh, accounting of all my expenses and income and i think because i was under 18 it, w- it went on their tax return i think so they had to like basically pay taxes on the profits of this little business or something but it was wow it was enough money it wasn't a lot it was i don't know five to eight thousand dollars a year but as a high school student it was good money that's correct um, and i just kept building that as a college student too i think my senior year at carolina i built probably sixty thousand dollars top line Wow. How about that? Okay. All right. All right. And, and so as you're, and are you thinking I'm going to start a different, uh, what, what was your plan at that point? I'm just curious as to where your mind was. What, what were you thinking at that point? Yeah. So the web design work got me into software because of one very simple fact, which is that people that I built websites for, which were like the average small business owner in so many ways. Okay. Um, and so they started asking for the ability to update their website 
on their own. And there weren't really platforms for that at the time. People would build websites out of HTML. They'd save all the files to a server, and that was now a website, and the links would click between the files. And there was no real software powering these things. Yeah. And so they started to ask for really simple things, like, how can, can I just update a little message paragraph on the top of the homepage that says, like, what's new at our property this week or this month? Um, and I learned software in order to figure out how to deliver that to them. Okay. And then I, I think I just started solving their other types of problems because I had these kind of, you could call them consulting clients where I'm building websites for. And they said, well, I've also got this problem. I've also got that problem. I need to inventory all the people that are checking in at our bed and breakfast. I need a better way to build them. And I just started building things that wow. they wanted. Wow. That was it. And this was all creation. This was all called creation. Yep, okay. Exactly. All right. All right. It came from my struggle to find a domain name that was available even in 1997. And so <laughs> I said, I'm doing web page creation. And I just smushed those last two words together. And oh, I see. So, I see. Um, okay. That was it. Yeah. And you, and you did that until, until you started eye contact. No, I actually ran that company and had 10 employees, almost a million dollars in revenue um, wow. in 2007, 2008. Um, and like a lot of services businesses, we got pretty crushed in the 08, 09 recession. Okay. Um, so I had started eye contact back in 2003. And so those were both running simultaneously. I actually found a couple of days ago, cleaning out some paperwork in my basement, um, the, the split lease agreement where both creation and eye contact <laughs> were on the line for our lease, uh, with the division of Hitachi <laughs> that we were subleasing from. Why so, did you do Why did you do that? Why did you start eye contact at the same time? What was the strategy there? So I started a couple of software things. I had, as a student, I had this thing that was, um, it was basically pulling down like the student database off of, of, of at, at any university um, and letting um, student body president candidates on campus like slice that data in interesting ways. So it was like a data analytics tool so they could figure out if I want to get more votes for my student body president campaign and I want like biology majors that are out of state, what dorm should I put flyers outside of? And they could literally slice the data and figure out those answers. Um, what else? I built some K through 12 software uh, for like that would automate things in K through 12 schools. So it did things like attendance and grading and quizzes and assignments uh, through a, a website, kind of like a portal that all the students and parents logged into. Um, it was absolutely evil. It would literally text message the parents if the student was more than five minutes late for class. Your friends, your friends must have gave you hell over that one. Your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Hell. It was we strictly had to sell it in, in school districts where I knew no one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you have a few things going on here, but, but for eye contact, did you bootstrap that yourself? Or you had a partner or how, how'd that work? Yep, absolutely. So I worked on that project for a couple years before I met uh, a guy named Ryan who would end up being my kind of co-founder for years in that business. Um, so that thing it, in concept dated literally all the way back to high school um, when I was working with all these tourism-based properties, people that own cottages and inns and bed and breakfast. And they had these really, in Western North Carolina, it was a very seasonal business. And so they wanted people to come um, people only came to see them about two months of the year in the fall when the leaves changed color. And they came from Florida, Alabama, Texas, and South uh, Louisiana. And so the rest of the year, these, their customers were a thousand miles away and they, um, they wanted an email tool to help them update those people. So I just had this thing and I, I actually offered it for free to anyone who had a website and hosted it with us already. Um, I had someone, a couple of guys named Wayne who, who ran a, um, uh, like dog treat website come along a couple years later and okay. offered okay. 500 bucks to use it. But it was like really casual until I met this guy named Ryan who had ended up becoming my co-founder, uh, Ryan Alice okay. at, at UNC. And he was like, man, we should do something really big with this. Cause he had interned at a company literally in high school in Bradenton, Florida, um, where he had done, he had run an email marketing campaign for a nutraceuticals company. And he was like, dude, 
we paid like $5,000 for a piece of software that we installed on a computer and it took down the office's entire internet connection for three days every time we sent an email. And he's like, you're, you're charging people like 500 bucks a year for this thing and it's seamless. It's on the web. It doesn't affect a computer. You know, it's cheap. Um, this is a way better model. He's like, let's go just find everyone else that was like me in this little like intern role that has to send out an email newsletter and let's sell them this other product. And so Great. Um, that's how the real origin of what was called eye contact started. Uh, before wow. that, it was called uh, the ever creatively named Creation List Blaster Pro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's, what, that's what we called it until then. So then you and him, you're off to the races at that point then. Yeah, so that was 2000 and, um, 2002, the fall of 2002. Still hadn't raised any money, just totally bootstrapped it. Just no, in fact, we worked together really informally that first year. Um, we didn't officially incorporate um, this new entity. We basically, the summer of 2003, in, I think it was July 2nd, 2003, we incorporated, um, the company actually was called Broadwick Corporation. The product was called Intellicontact in the beginning. Okay. okay. Um, Intellicontact Pro, I think. The pro name came over. I <laughs> got one win there. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we kind of worked together for almost a year, him doing some marketing work. Um, he was a he was a 30% commission only paid marketing consultant to the company for that first year. And, you know, lo and behold, the thing started selling. <laughs> and so wow. once we got about a year in, we said, hey, man, let's make this official. We both became shareholders in this new entity, but we eventually renamed iContact, but it was called IntelliContact at the time. Okay, very good. All right, very good. All right, so then you and your partner, you, you run it then for, what, almost 10 years before you, you, you sold it? Is that, walk us towards the back end then. Yeah, so I think we, the sale date was like February 28th, um, it was 2012, um, which is, gosh, a surprisingly long time ago at this point now. It's, just, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to believe for me. Um, but yeah, we ran, it for, we ran it for 10 years together. Um, we got it to, I think, about $3 million in revenue before we brought in any outside capital. Okay. So, the fast forward version of this entire story basically is this, is that we bootstrapped it because we didn't need any capital because I was a software developer and built it and had a, effectively a working product. Ryan was kind of like our product manager because he had some experience using a tool like it. And he's like, you're missing these three features and here's how we should price it. Um, and so together we had everything we needed to build a software company. And we had some early revenue that, um, you know, the revenue when Ryan joined me was probably $300 a month. Um, and then in the first year we did $13,000 in revenue together. And that honestly was enough to pay for the servers, pay for a couple of desks and some office space, um, pay for our internet bandwidth. And like, you know, we were a company. You're um, a company, you're a company and you, yeah, and, you, and you, and you got it all the way to 3 million and then you decided to raise some capital. Yeah. We had a friend of, friend of ours in North Carolina, an incredible entrepreneur, a guy named Judd Bowman, who's had just multiple exits and raised tons of capital over his career, sat down with Ryan for lunch one day and, um, Ryan came back to me and he's like, man, I just had this talk with Judd and Judd's like, look, you know, I know you guys don't want to raise capital, but since you're at 3 million bucks growing at, you know, 200% annually, like you could raise capital really cost effectively right now if you wanted to. Ah. Um, and so we said, yeah, let's, let's give it a try. We raised half a million bucks. Then we raised five and a half million bucks and we raised some debt, uh, about 15 million bucks in kind of debt and mes debt. And then later we did a series B round for $40 million and pretty much every one of those dollars went into one of two things. It went into advertising spend to bring us more customers because we could spend about 300 bucks and bring in a customer that paid us 2,800 bucks over four years. So it was just a, it was a money machine and it was like, you know, how fast can we crank the handle on it until we hit the top of the market? So we were always looking for like capacity issues. Like when are we going to max out the market? Mm -hmm. um, 2008, 2009, we did it. Our little company was the eighth largest B2B advertiser on the internet in the world. So in B2B, we outspent Nortel, Cisco, IBM, and Microsoft. 
Wow. Um, and that's because we figured out this equation and we just pumped capital into it. And the second thing it, it went to is, um, is software developers. <laughs> so you guys were able to maintain control as you raised that capital. I, I'm always just curious, and I don't know if you want to share it or not. Oh, maybe that's a little private, but I'm just, as you started raising cash, at, at one point, did it get uncomfortable because you got to give up more than 51%? Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, so so I'll tell you the point that we did. So we did very late in the game, fall below fifty percent. Okay, um, it was like it was like eighteen months before we sold. But one of the things that really advantaged us in the beginning was that because we got the company to three million dollars without any outside capital, uh-huh. you know, a normal seed round, a, a tech startup would give up maybe thirty percent of the company. Right, right. Um, we gave up four percent of the company <laughs> for our seed round for half a million bucks because awesome. we got a great deal of value. So awesome. we owned like way too much of the company in most people's perspective for okay. a very long time. Um, investors like had to put in special rights for themselves so that Ryan and I couldn't just take over the place. <laughs> um, uh, I love that. I love, I love that. Now you had, you had no experience raising cash really up to that point. Did that, did that first mentor you mentioned that gave you the first round of cash? Was that the person that guided you on these additional rounds or who did you go to for advice on that stuff? Yeah, I think with the first round, it was in big part Judd. Um, <clears throat> there were some other resources. We were still, our office was practically on the UNC Chapel Hill campus at this point. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we were like like one, we were in the, the downtown, which is called Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, um, where all the college students hang out. That's where our office was. So literally it was 100 yards from the official edge of campus. So um, we, we literally used our professors for a while as we were still students. Like right. I would set up office hours with my economics professor because I was taking like Econ 103 and I would go in and ask him about a pricing model in the business and <laughs> ask him about our pitch deck and things like that. So that's great. Some, some was university resources. <clears throat> Others were just, yeah, entrepreneurs in the community that said, here are the slides you need to put in the deck and, and help us figure it out. That's so awesome. What was it like the first time you sat across the, di- the dinner table for somebody and asked him for a million bucks? Was that, was that, was that weird? <laughs> it was terrifying. My legs were trembling and my hands were trembling. <laughs> uh, um, I remember some of the first meetings and the first guys that gave us money, um, made a very, um, very clear point with us that um, this guy named Dave, he said, his son, he said, my son is older than you guys. And I would never give my son a million dollars. <laughs> Even if I've taken half a million and a second tranche was a, a half a million again later. Um, he said, and literally, like, as we were papering this deal, he was like, I need to put provisions in here to make sure that you guys like, don't call me from St. Lucia tomorrow with my million dollars. Um, like, we were just so young. Uh, I was uh, so great. How, how old were you when you sold it? Um, I was uh, two weeks before my 31st birthday. So I was 30. Man, that is a, let's just let that sink in for a minute. That, that is a major accomplishment. I mean, congratulations. And now, when you, when you sold it, um, were, were you looking to sell? Were you planning to sell? Or somebody just caught, tapped you on the shoulder and said, we want to make you an offer. And you looked at your partner and said, hey, man, let's, I mean, how, how'd that go? Yeah, you know, at that point, we had been in it. It felt like forever. Like, think about it. I'm 30 years old, and I've spent over 10 years on something. Yep. So it's a third of my total life yeah, and yep. 100% of my professional life. Like, I'd literally been a high school student and before, you know, a <laughs> child before that. So it felt like a lot of time. Um, and we also now had this this cap table full of investors, right? We had $65 okay. million dollars of equity investors sitting on the, on the campus. And those guys, and those guys are starting to get, they're starting to be like, they're starting to want their money back. So it was a good time. Yeah, yes and no. So our Series A guys actually sold their basis out in the Series B round. Okay. So they were playing with house money at that point. Okay. Um, and our Series B guys, when we sold, had only been in 18 months. And they're more of a, a three to five year time horizon guy. So we certainly weren't getting any pressure to do a deal. 
Um, but Ryan and I were feeling a lot of pressure that, you know, like 99.9% of our net worths were tied up in this private company. Ooh, right. To us at that point, as like 20 year olds and me at 30, like, you know, what's, what really was going to be the difference between, you know, yep. $10 million and $15 million to yep. us. Like those are both life changing numbers. Yep. Um, and gotcha. so I, I at least was feeling the, the, the fear of just like, how much do we want to keep pressing on the gas pedal when the downside is zero? Um, do we want to go for a billion? Like that just seems foolish when maybe we can yep. cash out with 10 million each now. Gotcha. Um, so we had actually had a bunch of companies approach us. The answer to your question is we'd had offers at in the early days at, at 5 million, all private company stock we'd have to take, but 5 million bucks. We had offers at 25, offers at 60, a huge West Coast brand name company that everybody knows that has a very uh, boisterous, well-known CEO tried to buy us twice in 2009 okay. and 2010 um, at 95 million and 85 million. Um, and so we, you know, we had offers along the way. We actually tried to get all of those deals done and they just fallen through. So we were saying yes. And, and we tried to get them done and they backed out on us for a variety of reasons. So um, I bet that was, I bet that was a stressful time, even though you knew you were going to walk away with a lot of money personally, that had to be stressful during that time. I'm guessing super stressful. Um, so when you sold it, why, why are you still working? Why aren't you just skiing every day? What, 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 so, cause you could have retired, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I do a lot of skiing. <laughs> <laughs> why would you start boots? Why would you start another company after walking away with millions of dollars? Uh, why, why would you do that? I mean, you, you, you started boost suite like right away. Why, why wouldn't you just like take, by the way, you, you married with kids at this time? Uh, not at that time. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, why would you do that? Why, why would you start something else? I don't, I would have like taken a couple of years off and just, I don't know, traveled around. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So I mean, part of it was I was bored before we sold eye contact and I had for those last 18 months after our series B round, the 40 million round, I moved into just chairman of the board of directors. Role. Okay. Didn't have right. an operational role. Okay. I'm, I'm bored. I start a company. I see. I see. It wasn't public, but we had started it. We're building software. Okay. Um, and we launched, you know, again, a couple months after the sale and I had, I had a couple people I wanted to bring over. And so, um, a couple people, you know, pulled the ripcord and jumped out of the public company that acquired us and took the, the exit packages and came over and joined me later. And okay. so like, there was just some timing for all that stuff to come together. But, you know, I was obsessed with two things. Like, <clears throat> admittedly, there was some ego in there that, you know, I had a co-founder in my most successful business. Um, we fast forwarded through a lot of these, which there's just not enough time to go into all of them. But I've started 11 software companies. I know. I, I know. When I... I... Yeah. Trust me, trust me. I almost called you and said, hey, man, can we schedule three hours? <laughs> <laughs> no, no one wants to hear about all of them. But, but, but. But the point being that I was like, I had a lot of solo founding ones. And then I had this one with a co-founder. And then that was the big one. And I'm like, in my own head, I'm like, God, am I actually good at this? Can I do this? Can I do this I on my own? I said, that, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Was all it right. all my co-founder? Is he just like, all right. does he have the Midas touch and, and I don't? Or, okay. All right. That's I can see those. I can see those inner inner demons poking at you a little bit, maybe saying, "Hey, can yep. you can you do this by yourself?" All right, go, that's good. All right, so and then what? Fast forward. How did Boost yep. Suite do? Tell us. Did you end up exiting on that deal too? There was an exit. It ended. Yes, <laughs> um, I, I sold it to a friend of mine for a lot less money than I invested in it. Oh, okay. Um, you know, which was which was fine. Um, it was there was just some crazy challenges in that business. We had four big product pivots. 
trying to really figure out our place in the market. Um, and then we were also squeezed between a couple of massive partners, like our partners, again, Shopify and Google, and we were a small startup. And so getting them to care about what I we see. needed, getting their needs to align with ours was effectively impossible. And so, so what'd that do to your ego? Because because you were bound and determined to start something by yourself. And, and then that one, yeah. you, you, so now is it, now are you like waking up every day going, damn it, I'm going to, I'm going to do another one. I don't know. What, what are you? <laughs> you it was more like, I was just, I was just t sick and tired of it, kind of okay. the whole game. Um, okay. I think partially I realized why I started that company is because I was just kind of addicted to trying to, to building things and to trying to be the successful guy that I wanted the world to see me as. Um, and well, you are, well, you, but bro, you are that just so you know, <laughs> you are. Yeah, I, just, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, like it never left or something. You know, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, it, it wasn't, it was definitely not, um, in the, in the motivation didn't really come from the right place okay. for that company. Okay. Um, and I left that. And when, when I sold that, um, uh, I literally moved to, to Colorado like 60 days later. It was just kind of needing a big life change. Okay. Um, my kids are, you know, five and two then. And um, I was like, you know, I, you know, I was still spending a good amount of time with them. Like I wasn't in the office 80 hours a week or a hundred hours a week, like the early startup days. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just like, man, these are great years in my life. I want to spend more time with them. Great. And I'm just, I just feel beat up. Like I just feel beat up and washed out entirely. Well, that goes, that rolls right into the book that you're writing, right? Because, yep. you know, being an entrepreneur, being a CEO, for those listeners that haven't done it, it will beat the hell out of you physically, emotionally. I mean, it is super ass hard. It's harder than me and you could really even describe on this podcast and, until you've lived it. Mm -hmm. Even if you're as successful as you've been and you exited several companies and you've made a lot of money, the emotion internally uh, and, and emotionally, it's, it's, I'm sure it's, it's wore you out. And there's some scars in there, probably some deep ones. Uh, a lot of walking around in your living room at 3.30 at night in a sweat and, and in a panic, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, my, my lowest point was actually about two years after selling eye contact while running Boost Suite, when, when things were still actually going pretty good in, in the Boost Suite business and like the writing wasn't on the wall of the challenges we would ultimately have. Um, I found myself just completely overtaken with anxiety, um, probably mild depression, but it still hurt, sucked, um, mm -hmm. felt terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it together. Like my happiness was at an all time life low and I have more money than I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, and I find myself alone in this massive house and I've got a 2000 square foot home office. And, you know, I write in, in the book, it's got one of my favorite lines is something like, you know, the, the nicest house on the nicest hole on this golf course with the nicest fairway and the nicest golf course within the nicest neighborhood in this amazing Southern town of Chapel Hill. Um, and I feel completely alone and I don't know. That's powerful, bro. How That's, I've gotten there. That is, you weren't married at the time. I was married at the time. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay. So and I had, and we had young kids at the time, so had the family, but just the, these moments of like mm -hmm. sitting in my office and, um, which were just, which was just anxiety overtaking me. And, and mm -hmm. I looked at myself and I'm like, man, you know, whatever I started with 10 years ago as an entrepreneur, like didn't, like I was a happy, optimistic dreamer type person. Yeah. Um, and it didn't make it through the ride. Like I, it, it squirted me out the other end with a whole bunch of money out of this process. And I lost everything else. And I had to look at myself and go like, how did I get here? And why am I here? Mm. And this is, this transition you've been in now is the reason you're writing the book, I'm guessing. And I, so I'm guessing you've, you've gotten yourself into a better place emotionally at this point, enough to 
you, you kind of snapped yourself back and now you want to share that story and talk about it uh, in your book, I'm assuming. Yeah, so the book's called Startup Burn, and it's about um, the kind of this analogy that um, that's that's that effect that we as entrepreneurs go through the the entrepreneurial process, and there's something we lose along the way. It's kind of like uh, getting a sunburn. Uh, maybe when you're not realizing it, you're excited, you're out playing in the sun, you're you're at the beach, and you're having a great time, and you don't feel it until you take a moment to go inside at the end of the day, and you wonder why your skin's blistering and falling off. And, right. the, and the startup burn effect is is very similar. It's often just overcome by pure adrenaline and sheer will in the early years, and then over time, it starts to really set in and, and change patterns. And um, Steve, look, the bottom line here is that um, entrepreneurship is making really smart people really sick. Um, mentally and and physically ill. And um, some of the data that's, there's very little research around this stuff, but I'm pulling together um, what is out there. And then my own experiences and about 30 other entrepreneurs, we tell their stories in the book. Um, And it's crazy. Entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to report having a mental health condition than non-entrepreneurs. They're twice as likely to report depression. And this this one is just staggering. So I'll slow it down for it. 11 times more likely to report bipolar personality disorder. 11x. Wow. This is like this wow. is like a symptom of like putting people on the moon or something. Like, it's like <laughs> it shouldn't be that acute, but it is. Uh, I believe all of those stats. Being an entrepreneur, being a former executive with a regular paying job, turned entrepreneur, running Riderflex. I get it. I, I totally get it. I can relate. And you know, not to share too much. Uh, detail on this podcast, but uh, yeah, it's super stressful. And it's even worse when you get your business to where you have employees and their families that are depending on you to make the right decision. And you and you meet those spouses and you meet those children and you see the look on their faces like they look at they're looking at you like, hey bro, we're dependent on you to make the right decision. It's more it's more stressful than I can really possibly explain. So I totally understand those stats. I really do. Uh, and I and you've lived it your whole life. Right. So for that entrepreneur that is listening that did wake up at three AM last night and walk around his living room for forty five minutes, super stressed. Yeah. With his heart pounding out of his chest. What's your advice for that person? Yeah. So my takeaway from this whole experience, like 11 companies over in total about 20 years, um, is that, you know, my, like my own advice to myself would have been, don't assume that my personal faculties are unlimited. Don't, don't assume that my mind and my body are resources that I can use infinitely. Um, and I tell people to, to do a couple things and they're, they're kind of weird. Like, I don't think you hear a lot of this in the entrepreneurial world. And that's why I think this message is really important to get out there. Um, measure your happiness, um, measure your freedom. So measure happiness. I literally on a, on a one to 10 scale measured it for about 500 days in a row. I, I finished it about a year ago. Um, just how happy was I today on a one to 10 scale? Um, don't lose sight of that. Um, if you're not doing things that you love, I think this is the freedom one. I think the best way to measure freedom is to look back at your schedule for the last week and how many one hour blocks were you doing things that you hate. Um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing things that you hate, you're not, you haven't checked the freedom box that we all were trying to get to, to not be a, you know, in the corporate, you know, corporate cog in the system and we want to do our own thing. Um, are we really free or are we doing things that we hate all day long? <laughs> and I think the third thing is empower a personal, I call it a, a personal health accountability buddy. But um, like for those metrics and any other ones you want to establish that have to do with you, the entrepreneur, right? You, you are the life force of your business. You are the creative force, the innovative force. Um, no one else is bringing the energy you're bringing to the idea. Like right. you're going to change the world because of you. 
And so you've got to manage yourself as a key asset to the outcome of this business, mm. as well as just what you want to be left with after your experience, whether you succeed or not uh, on the business side. And so I always like to tell people, um, find somebody in your life. It could be your spouse. It could be a family member and share those KPIs that you've developed for yourself around happiness, around freedom, whatever else mood. I think there's maybe a third, very important one. Did you feel manic today? Did you feel a little depressed today? Mm. Um, those are both, uh, those are both bad. Uh, 10, 10 out of 10 manic, so excited, super raging, you know, working on things in the business. Um, is going to lead to a depressive cycle, right? Uh, and even very healthy and smart people uh, when you do it enough. So I actually tell people to, to limit the highs as well a little bit, try and pull it a little bit more towards the center um, and report those metrics to an accountability buddy. Um, could even be an investor if you can be that open with them, but it's probably someone in your personal life um, that you can share these things with. You know, the book's also, you know, not just for, not just for entrepreneurs, but being a, being a CEO is also a very lonely place <laughs> and very, very stressful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, for those that have never experienced that as well. Uh, let me ask, the, when's the book going to be out, by the way? Probably mid-2020. That's mid, the goal. Mid-2020. Mid okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and uh, so let me ask a couple more questions. For entrepreneurs listening, for want-to-be entrepreneurs, they have an idea, they got a buddy even maybe, they got a partner, they want to start something, mm -hmm. they're super scared because they both have regular jobs and they both you know, are married with kids and they got mortgages and car payments and they only got, you know, I don't know, $20,000 in the bank and yeah. they're scared. Mm -hmm. they, they, haven't, they haven't pulled the trigger. What would you tell them? Yeah. So first, all of the, the previously stated stuff around mental health and performance. <laughs> Second, around the business side of it, um, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes I, I see people make these days, um, and I happen to do this right purely out of necessity. <laughs> so it's not that I got it right and everyone else gets it wrong. Um, I think there's a, there's a big pop culture thing around entrepreneur in, in entrepreneurship where like you need to go apply to like Techstars Accelerator or you need to go on Shark Tank. And in order to do that, you've got to just go like all in. And then within like the 10 weeks that you're in an accelerator, you know, it will be determined whether this thing is a big success or not. Right. And you'll have a, an easy answer. And that leads people, whether they go that path or not, to go, all right, we're going to, you know, mortgage the house, quit our jobs. And in like 10 weeks, we'll have an answer before we run out of cash. And then we can go back to doing whatever or something like that, right? We can pull the ripcord and, and safely land. Um, you know, the reality of this thing is like, it's like yeah. 36 months to five years before you learn much of anything. Yeah. And so what I like to tell people is just figure out how to not, like figure out how to make it five years. So if that, if there's a way to quit your job and make it five years, that's fine. Um, but for most people, it probably means don't quit your job and work on things on the side, on the side, build product, find customers, test things out, make sure you've got, you know, agreements so that you own what you're doing. That can be a problem when you work for, let's say a big company and you're doing something like if you're a software developer and you're building software in your side gig, just make sure that's clear. Yep. You might pay an attorney 500 bucks to figure that out for you, but you know, there's clear, easy ways to do that. Um, and, and build it really slowly until you figure out you actually have something. It's easy to tell when you actually have a business. You've got revenue, people are beating down your doors trying to get your product, and you're having issues of scale. I can't deliver it fast enough, or customers need these five other features, and they've told me exactly what they are, and I just need to deliver them. I don't have enough software developers. That's when you have a business, and go all in at that point. But until then, don't go all in. I like that. That's great advice. And by the way, for the listeners, I just want to emphasize the point. 
it's not it's this is not like a movie where you know you're you're, you're gonna you're gonna start this thing and in 12 months you're gonna sell it for a billion dollars it just doesn't go that way i mean the chances of that happening are so tiny right um, yeah, so I, I, numbers are already really bad right for any type of positive exit they're already very 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 low i think you know i don't know if this is real data but people joke that the average entrepreneur makes less than minimum wage like you know yeah exactly don't go into it with these super high expectations and and be able to survive the failure case is probably another one, right? Be able like, to survive, yep. Yeah, like because of that, like I, you know, don't try not to mortgage the entire house. Try not to put everything on the line. You know, bankruptcy is an option. It's fine. It doesn't kill people, but it's not fun. Um, yeah. But just figure out ways that like failure actually leads you to something interesting. It might lead you into the great next corporate position that you wanted because you were in an interesting space and you were a thought leader along the way. Even though the business doesn't work, you land safely in your next career or or whatever it is, like think through those plan B's because that plan B is way more likely than plan A. Let's go. <laughs> so you're writing the book. Are you still, you, are you an investor in some companies? Are you, are you on the board of a few things or are you thinking about starting something else? Yeah. So I've, I've been doing a lot of advising and a little bit of investing, mostly okay. in and around software companies the last couple of years and mostly B2B software, some of the MarTech okay. stuff still, but okay. um, some of the consumer um, very, very little really. And, and I made the decision about six months ago that I would pull back all of my advising and investing only to things that align with my current you know, mental health, happiness, and performance of entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, and so I've got one software investment right now, which is in, uh, in an app uh, that's actually based in Boulder called Huck Adventures that connects people to do things in the outdoors. Okay. Uh, it's great for mental health. It brings people together in a world where community is so lacking. And so uh, it, to me, it checks a lot of those boxes. And so it just happens to be software, but it aligns with the passion. Um, yeah, that, that's where it is for now. Well, I'm I know. Really I, I know. I know this really cool growing recruiting firm called Riderflex that is looking for somebody like Aaron to just come in and take over and just explode us and sell for a billion dollars. So yeah, we, we can talk, we can, we can talk about that offline. I'll be by after the holiday. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, just one, 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 uh, oh, two, two more, two more final questions. I know we're almost out of time. We've got a few minutes here. If you could call your 18 year old self and tell him anything, would you give that young man any advice to do anything differently at all? Yeah. I mean, look, I made this mistake that you've heard me talk about a couple times here. So I'll just go back to it again, which is to, you know, I would tell myself quantify your mental and physical health and track how it changes over time. I just got, I just got blindsided by this whole thing, Steve. I don't know how I did it. Like, Thought I was a pretty smart guy coming into it. Um, and I was just good at a couple things in you know, software and could talk to customers. I could then, you know, basically whip myself as, as much as possible to deliver the business outcomes that I wanted um, with, with no downside. Um, I just didn't value, like, I didn't value my mind and my body as things that I would eventually live with. Um, you, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad that your, your book is, is touching on, on these things about the stress of being an entrepreneur. You know, if I could share, I just want to share this personal story on, on this side of the mental health part of it. You know, at the age of 50, I started, and I had started Riderflex when I was 49. And at the age of 50, I started going up into the mountains camping by myself on solo trips mm -hmm. where, I, where I would go up for, for two or three nights just all alone mm -hmm. and just do a lot of meditation, a lot of thinking. And man, you know, you're, you're just, you're so right, Aaron. I mean, if you can find a place to be emotionally and mentally healthy, 
it will change your life. It, it will truly just change how you feel in so many ways. And so whatever it is you need to do as an entrepreneur, maybe you don't go to the mountains, go camping by yourself, but whatever that thing is, mm-hmm. I, I highly encourage people to find it because it's so important for, for you know, your internal happiness, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Let's see if we can give people a couple of things like, I like to think about, so those, like, that's a great idea of something to do when you're having like a symptom, right? It's like a solution to a problem. I like to think about like triggers for people that if they're running companies now or they're executives and like, how do you know when you're suffering? So, I mean, a couple examples right off the top of my mind um, that are real tangible is um, if you're not sleeping well, like if you can't go to sleep and fall asleep within like 15 minutes, <laughs> um, you know, cause your mind's racing with thinking about the day or business or challenges or whatever's going on in your life. Um, Alcohol use, drug use, alcohol yep. use, yep. really, really big and kind of under under discussed, right? I mean, it's very easy to start up social every night of the week and have four or five drinks and call it being social. But if you need that to go to sleep or if you need that to calm your mind, um, those are huge crutches. And it means that you're, you're failing somewhere else that most of us have failed in. You're right. Um, it's fine. So go work on that with things like meditation, like you talked about. Um, one of my favorite ones that is so silly and I laugh every time I say it, but it comes up like 70% of the time when I interview entrepreneurs is they have an eyelid twitch. Like they'll just be going through their day and they're like, Oh my God, my eyelids twitching. Like what's up with that? Like if you Google that, that literally just says like you're under too much stress is the only cause of eyelid twitches. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. <laughs> one. Like, these are, like if these are things that you're experiencing, you can maybe you could toss out a few others, right? Like these are, these are signs that you're pushing too hard and yeah. that's fine. We've all been there, but that means it's time to start seeking solutions. Yeah. You'll find them. Great. Last question. What is Aaron's core purpose in life? If you had to put your core purpose into a sentence and you didn't tie it to your wife or kids, because I want you to take it, push it beyond your immediate family. What is Aaron's core purpose? Yeah. So to me, it's to save a million entrepreneurs from themselves. Um, <laughs> we're we're addicted, addicted to achievement and stress. And um, I think that, you know, to me, it's like uh, save the whales, save the entrepreneurs. Um, <laughs> not just because I want them to have a better experience, but also because the world relies on them, right? Like humanity is behind schedule on a bunch of things, education, climate change, distribution of opportunities, renewable energy, communities are falling apart. Kindness is at an all time deficit. Like the solutions to these things are going to come from the most innovative people. And the most innovative people are ill. They're sick right now. I want to heal them. You know, one of the, one of the things I love about you, bro, now that I've got a chance to know you is you don't like, you could retire right now. You don't have to write this book to help people. But you are. You're doing this to give back. Uh, and that's obvious because you don't have to, right? You're doing it because you want to share and you want to help people. And that's, that's pretty authentic when, when you hear you talk. I mean, it's real. And uh, I love that about you. That, that's cool that you're sharing that story. Thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my ongoing therapy. You mentioned earlier kind of, you know, the book being about my process to go from that unhappy place to a happy place. Um, I am much happier than I was back then. But to me, this is a, an ongoing journey. And the book is is really documenting like the places I've gone to try and find answers. And there's some crazy stories from standing at 5am in fields in Boulder, exchanging rocks with middle-aged women that I don't know to all sorts of amazing experiences and some of them have helped and, and I share that in the story. I love it. I can't wait for it to come out, matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't wait for it to come out. Aaron, congratulations, man. What an awesome career. Um, congratulations on everything you've done, the businesses that you've sold. 
Um, and, and thank you for giving back and uh, writing, writing something that's going to help entrepreneurs. I, I know it's real. I know people need help because there are times I might call you. By the way, do I have your cell phone? I might need to call you at 3 a.m. We'll go out in the woods and uh, exactly. do some hiking and meditation together. I'm in. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. I really appreciate it, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Take, take care, man. Thanks. The Rider Flex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. Our show can be heard just about anywhere these days, but you can visit riderflex.com and click on the podcast page to hear all the previous episodes and learn more about the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Contact us at the email address info at riderflex.com or 888-964-5876. Thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and like the episodes.